This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Shakespeare. <laughs> That's him. That's the man, the bard himself. The bard. Welcome to Overdue, his podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name, forsooth, my name is Andrew. Shakespeare is back. Back again. This guy. Guess who's back? Can't get, can't keep this guy down. Tell a friend. And his like two dozen-ish plays that he wrote, probably at least that many. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I don't... <laughs> Actually, off the top of my head, what is the number? Is it twenty? I, I was looking at the the then the folio have like twenty one or twenty two in it. That sounds the first one. some some thirty nine plays. I think is the number. Mm. Does that include the ones that we don't got no more? I think that includes the ones that we're not sure if they're his. The ones what we don't have no more. Um, the ones that maybe he wrote or maybe he just helped another dude write. Mm. Um, this is a podcast where somebody reads a book or in this case a play and tells the other person about it. Usually it's a book or play that they have not read before and you, the listener, get to enjoy all that follows. Yeah. Uh, Craig, you didn't read King Lear this time. What did you read? (laughs) No, I definitely didn't read King Lear this time. Which I read. Yes. I remember Uh, that sad king. (laughs) That guy was sad. Go off, sad king. (laughs) That guy was sad. Don't go off, King Lear. Go away. Um, This is going to be about the Winter's Tale. Um, We've been saying his name. It's by William Shakespeare. This is our third Shakespeare play, I think. Um, The ones that I could find that we had done (laughs) were Antony and Cleopatra Mm -hmm. and King Lear. Um, as recent as episode 63. So it's been a while. It's been a while since we revisited the Bard. And I think this came up because we got some like emails where people were like, yo, would you ever do an episode on the Bard? And I was like, I thought we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we hadn't in a long time. <laughs> yeah. So things we know about William Shakespeare is he was born in the 16th century. Yeah, 1564 in Stratford upon died in the 17th century 1616 in, in the same town yeah mm-hmm. he wrote on, a bunch of on plays. his birthday i believe is like the thing isn't that a thing He's happy, happy birthday william shakespeare <laughs> is, that, is that true i don't know it's close it's like right. within well that days. doesn't count then close doesn't oh, count we because he was baptized yeah no we think it we think it was like pro- pretty pretty much the same day you and a, yeah we think this that's an opinion of our show is that yep. we, this is what we think happened yep uh-huh. <laughs> other opinion of this show william shakespeare wrote all his plays except the ones he didn't what he also had a son named hamnet yeah, we talked about that in episode 451 when we I discussed know, we the d- book Hamnet. No, I know. I know. We talked about it. I'm just I'm just bringing it back up. He named his son Hamnet. Yeah, he did. And then he was very sad when his son Hamnet died, and so he wrote the play Hamlet. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> what I feel like he wrote that play because of the typo that showed up on the birth certificate that caused his son to be named Hamnet. That's also possible. Mm-hmm. We don't. We can't prove that either way. Other facts you want to share with the class, Andrew? Are we talking about facts or are we talking about things that you and I think to be true about William Shakespeare? Um, give me the overlap or <laughs> <laughs> the guy's got like a light bulb looking head. You know that picture of him? Oh, yes, a fact. Okay. So our our <laughs> we think we think William Shakespeare looks like a, light, a bulb. light bulb with a wig. Forsooth, it looks like you're writing a play. Forsooth. That's uh-huh. <laughs> Clippy Shakespeare. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't have any more other facts, and that's the thing is we don't like we don't know about a lot about him for a guy who we, has so much like work that survived. Yeah, we know that like by the 1590s he was probably already pretty successful because at least one other person had written about a play they didn't like and were referencing the shake scenes in it. Got him. <laughs> um, and then in the like 
93, 94, he wrote Venus and Adonis and the Rip of Lucrece. Those were like these narrative poems, these dramatic poems, because the theaters were closed for plague. It's just a thing that's been happening for centuries. Um, And then he joined the war. But we we just have to get people back in the theater. We just, we got to get back to normal. We We got to reopen the economy and get people back in the playhouses. Um, he joins the Lord Chamberlain's men, and then they build the Globe in 1599. Then they're putting on plays. You know, Queen Elizabeth is gone, and then they're doing it for James the First, which is why they do the Scottish play because that guy loved being Scottish and uh, thought witches were real, like ghosts were real. Um, and then this play shows up around 1611, we think. Uh, was one of the first performances, and then along with the Tempest, probably in sixteen eleven or sixteen thirteen. Um, yeah, and, and then, these are these are toward the end of his run. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. grouped together. See, that's a, that's part of the fun about not knowing a lot about William Shakespeare and his like authorial intent. Intent is like scholars just bring whatever they want to this. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> so this is like vaguely loosely grouped together in a. In a string of like barely thematically and stylistically related plays at the end of his life, they're often referred to as his late romances or uh-huh. just romances. Yeah, uh, which is a term that some guy came up with in nineteenth in the nineteenth century, and everyone else is just like, okay. Dude, did you also see the part where it's it's lumped under the problem plays? Also, I, so I saw the thing about the problem <laughs> plays. I saw that they're sometimes referred to as tragic comedies. Yeah. Uh huh. Like the show Scrubs, <laughs> yeah. Because it's so okay. It's not funny. Like this play opens with a bromance. That's interesting. Mm, interesting. So the Shakespeare's bromances. Yep. It, so the, don't don't think like romance novels. Like you, no. Like we understand it in the modern no. time where somebody who's supposed to be Kylo Ren and somebody who's supposed to be Ray from Star Wars kiss. Yeah. Uh no, it means like romance novels, like a like the old form where it was just a, a novel where a bunch of sort of fantastical stuff happened. Yeah, not unlike a chivalric uh, romance in a way. If you sure. think about it, sure. If you think about it, I don't yeah. know. If, I don't don't know if we've read any of those ever. I mean, <laughs> we our our boy Don Quixote read I, a lot of them. I, I I know. Oh okay, it was a That's joke. A, Sorry, my yeah, bad. You missed you missed it. You oh, missed I did. It. Blink blink and you'll miss the jokes. <laughs> Thanks, Ferris. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what? Well, so it's it's uh, the Tempest is one of these romances. The Winter's yep. Tale, Cymbeline is is usually sure. lumped in there somewhere. Um, but you know, it's not like his tragedies, like your uh, Romeo and Juliet's, or your uh, what's the one with the woods Dunsinane? Oh, the Scottish Banquo. play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Macbeth. Um, I don't work in drama. Mm. I don't work in the theater, so I can say it. Mm. Um. Can you go outside and say some of the lines from Hamlet that make the that make it all okay? Can no, you do I'm that, okay. Please? No, I'm okay. So Somebody's those are those are big those are big sad ones. Yeah, where lots of bad stuff happens and everybody ends up dead and miserable. At yeah, the end. Uh-huh. and so these are more like his earlier comedies in that they generally have pretty happy endings. At least it's like not everybody ends up poisoned or dead or whatever. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But also, heavy stuff can still happen. Yeah. They're, they're also marked, and this is something that you remarked on to me before we, I started researching anything, is they're marked by sort of a stylistic departure where, like, lines end in the middle of themselves and, like... There's a lot more, yeah, he's... The he's, rhythm of the language is just kind of weird and experimental. In this particular play, there's something I noticed that's similar to The Tempest which are especially when a character goes on like a soliloquy or a monologue, um, rarely does a, like, there's one from Antigonus in this play that I, I noted for myself just so I had a good example, and I think it's Act 3, where, like, he starts a monologue at the beginning of a line, and for the rest of the monologue, every sentence ends in the middle of a line which the poetry is just wonky you're never going to get a rhyming couplet it's harder to sustain those thoughts over time or at least they kind of tumble into each other he also has a lot of dialogue where characters are interrupting themselves in the dialogue Uh he's he's always been he's always done this thing where characters can like hear themselves talk and think and react to themselves in real time and a lot of scholars kind of 
point to that as kind of an, an advancement of what he was doing in drama relative to some of his peers. But like in this one, man, like Leontes is trying to like get somebody to agree with him that his wife's sleeping around and like he can barely ask the question because he has to like qualify it three times in a way that aren't even fully formed thoughts. And usually you're you are accustomed to a Shakespearean character taking like a full idea in the middle of a sentence and like sketching it out. And this is way more broken and choppy and uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he just kind of got bored with straightforward people <laughs> thinking the way that they do or what yeah, he's see, up to. That's, that, so I found this uh this JSTOR paper, which I could not actually read all of because I'm not in higher education. Yeah. Uh, but by Jennifer Richards and James Knowles, where you can kind of read like the abstract and some summaries of some things. And, and they summed up a few different like there are just a, a range of different things that people bring to this play and to all these late romances. Sure. Um, from that paper, uh, quote, Shakespeare's late plays have generated different responses from one perspective. They are, quote, meanly written from another unrealistic. The product of a playwright, quote, bored with people, bored with real life, bored with drama, bored, in fact, with everything except poetry and poetical dreams. <laughs> and from yet a third, myths of immortality. Uh, there are all, I also read about people people talking about how many of these plays feature older characters because yeah. Shakespeare's company would have been, like, the people sure. in that company would have been aging and getting older. Huh. Um, some people talked about, I don't know, he had, like, a revulsion to sex, apparently. Late in his life, I don't know what that's based on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's just like people just kind of make up whatever they want, and there's the it's 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 <laughs> like diving into the canon of a major franchise or something. It's like you know what you never you never saw Boba Fett die, so I guess he's still alive. Um, uh, just hold on to that one for a sec. Hold on to that thought for a second. We're going to talk about that in about 30 But like, minutes. you can't, you, there's nothing that says this didn't happen. So I can just kind of uh-huh. assume that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's trying to figure out, it is something we do on this show a lot yeah. is we'll read about an author and oh, we yeah. will then take their life's context and not to say that every book that we've ever read is like autobiographical, but to say, you know, this, We're just this interested is, in it. This is based like from what we read in this book and what we read about their life. Like we can see why maybe this factored into their creative work and we yeah. can we can analyze it that way. We are in, not part of the new school in. Yeah. News. We are the new new school. <laughs> But for Shakespeare, you just have the work and you don't have any of the context. And so people are always trying to reconstruct the context in ways that I find pretty uh, far-fetched <laughs> sometimes. Oh, not the new school. New criticism. My bad. We're Whatever. the new new critics. Excuse We're me. The, we Who criticizes the new critics? <laughs> the, well, that's an interesting like this um shakespeare as a prism for what we're bringing to the table is there's a parallel to so i read the folger edition for the pod um is that the best part of waking up it it was not a bad way to wake up mm-hmm. um i did read most of this in the morning the other day mm-hmm. um and they make an argument that shakespeare's writing in general and i think this play is probably a useful way to think about it um is you're looking at a lot of like collisions in English Renaissance society. And like, if you read a like, I read Stephen Greenblatt's, I think it's Steve Greenblatt's Will of the World book like a decade ago. And he's like, take, he takes a play and a part of Shakespeare's life and Elizabethan England and is like, here's why that play reflects that. And so, like, a lot of scholarship, as you're saying, is doing that. This play in particular is doing some interesting stuff with like, you've got a lot of Shakespeare's kind of Christian beliefs about, you know, whatever, you know, morality or, you know, people believing in God and and things like that. And then you've got all of these like Greco-Roman classics that have recently been printed and like flooded academia at the time. So all of his reference points are like got wacky mythologies compared Every, to what people are learning in church. Kind of, everybody's got some kind of vaguely Greeky name. Yes. Well, <laughs> this play in particular, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you've also got like, you know, Western European colonialism is really getting into full swing. So you've got all sorts of like versions of going out into the quote unquote new world and stuff. Um, so yeah, these plays, especially these later ones where it's just like real hodgepodge of stuff. Um, the Winter's Tale and the 
and the Tempest are really about like forgiveness and like a bad thing happens either before the play begins or really early with little explanation the type of thing that might be the end point of a tragedy or at least the act three part of a tragedy happens like pretty early or before the, the story even starts and then like I don't know, it just kind of goes goes places. Act four of this play is mostly vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's and I I think the first time this was published was in the first folio. I think because other plays had gotten like quarto publications before that. There's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down about the fact that Shakespeare wasn't really involved in any of the publication of his plays. And so, what version are we even really reading? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't have time to talk about that, but it's like a whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so we should probably. And then get, this guy, well, this guy is the guy who we've decided we're going to base all modern <laughs> drama and storytelling on. Like this is let's, let's pick this guy who we don't know anything about, and maybe his work was by him, or maybe it isn't, and like maybe it's him. being presented to us in the form that he intended it to be, and maybe it's not. Yeah, let's just take this one light bulb looking dude's work and <laughs> just form. Use that as the foundation for an entire art form. That sounds great. Yeah, I think so. It does. <laughs> well, the, here's the fun thing, Andrew. We've already done it for 400 years. So, like, we can't undo that. We can make a choice to not do that as much moving forward. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are making that choice. And I think there are times where that's the right choice or you just set it in jazz age or you yeah. make it have amanda Bynes in it or what yeah. like there are people modernize shakespeare all kinds of ways. those are the two ways uh well no you forgot put it in space but yeah those are the three ways space, amanda sure. Bynes, jazz mm-hmm. and space now if you could do all three i don't know if amanda Bynes is still working these days well you pitch her on a space jazz age winter's tale she might show up mm, sure okay Tune in after the break. Find out if we got our grant funding for this project. Oh, my God. Exit pursued by a bill. Oh, no. <laughs> let me tell you, Craig, let me tell you about True Bill. Have you heard <laughs> about these guys? about them yeah tell me more though <laughs> true is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need want or simply forgot about on average craig people save up to 720 dollars a year with Truebill because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel Truebill makes it incredibly simple just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap and your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Oh, thank God. So has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a demo of something because you need to use it one time, and then you forget to unsign up for it, and you pay for it (laughs) for four or five months before Uh you are checking your bank statement, and you're like, I don't know what this particular $7.99 is doing. Mm Truebill is going to help you find that and nip it in the bud before it can cost you a bunch of money this has happened to me it has cost me money and i don't want it to happen to me again andrew mm-hmm. yep all right well then it sounds like you need to get the to a uh, true billery <laughs> don't fall for subscription scams start canceling today at truebill.com slash overdue go right now truebill.com slash overdue it could save you thousands of dollars a year truebill.com slash overdue Let me tell you a tale, Andrew. Unfortunately, it's not winter. It's a, it's, it is a bard's tale, though. It is a bard's tale. I've never played that game. Um, <laughs> the winter's tale, I believe, gets its name from what? The winter, sort of the season of winter. Well, the idea that you'd maybe like be in your house in winter and you'd need a story to pass the time, perhaps. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a fable. Maybe something that you know isn't not a trifle. It's another game I haven't played. I have. I've never played a fable. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand it's British though, so it's relevant to this sure. podcast. Okay. Um, the it's like I think Shakespeare's audience would have known going into a play, or was supposed to have known going into a play called The Winter's Tale, that it might be a little fanciful, not not shallow per se, but not a like deep serious tragedy. And right. maybe maybe might be a little magical 
or a little i think one term that is used for act four of this play in particular is pastoral pastor i had uh, yes i had read that yes. i read pastoral we go to another location that is not at the king's court it's out in a different place it's off it's on the coast of bohemia which is not a place uh there's a lot of scholarship on why shakespeare refers to the coast of the sea coast of bohemia um which by any account of geography at the time would not have been a real place but uh he based this play mm-hmm. off another story or play the story Pandosto, Pandosto. Ah, yes. Published in 1588. You want to hear about this Pandosto guy? Tell me about Pandosto. Pandosto is the king of Bohemia. Get this. <laughs> and he's like, hey, you, my wife, have committed adultery. Oh. With my my childhood friend, the king of Sicilia. Yeah. All these, you go to preschool for kings? Where do you get all these king friends? <laughs> So he's like, "Hey, you wife, you committed adultery, and you and you'd had a child by this other guy who wasn't me, and so out I ban I banish thee." Mm-hmm. And so his his daughter, his like baby daughter, lives. So so these charges were unfounded. His baby yeah. daughter lives, but his wife and his son die. Mm-hmm. Uh, his daughter floats away, grows up, then he marries her. What? later not knowing who she is oh oedipus but reverse uh-huh and then uh pandosto figures out pandosto figures out what happened and then he kills himself oh so it's like it's a tragedy yeah it's a tragedy and so Ooh. shakespeare was like what if this pandosto story but like it's like it's just lighting it up in a couple places so for modern audience it up a little bit yeah uh, so yes okay so let's go through the dramatis personae andrew because i think it's a fun list yeah this sounds great let's um, and you've one. already done a little bit of the plot actually so we can, that can help move us along afterwards so we've got <laughs> we've got leontes or Leontes, the king of Sicilia, actually. Shakespeare thought it important to flip which king was upset in his version. <laughs> um, the king of Sicilia is married to uh, Hermione Granger, queen of Sicilia. Mm-hmm. Or it's just Hermione. I'm making a joke. Leviosa. Um, their son is named Mamilius. Their daughter, whom we don't meet until she's a baby born in Act 2, is Perdita. Uh, means lost. Perdita. Mm-hmm. If you know your romance languages, get it. Uh, Polixenes, your pronunciation's throwing me a little bit, but well, I would I would say Perdita, but I think the way it scans in the poetry is Perdita, so I'm going to blame okay. Shakespeare on that. one. All right, I mean maybe uh, he's messing with with meter and rhythm and stuff. He and could the- be. I also blame YouTube. I I asked YouTube. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, I Pol- blame Emma says or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Polixenes is the king of Bohemia. Florizel is his son, whom we meet in Act Four. Camillo uh, works for Leontes and then later works for Polixenes. I'll tell you why that happens. There's a guy Antigonus who works in the court. Uh, his wife Paulina is like the brassy lady number two in this play she may or may not have magical powers she talks back to the king of sicilia all the time uh i think if you are acting in this play and they are being really you know gender essentialist about their casting and you're a woman you might want to be paulina because she's got a lot to do and kind mm-hmm. of drives the play yeah um we've got some courtiers cl- cl- Cleomenes and Dion, their main job is to show up before Act 3 and report what the Oracle at Delphi said. Uh, no one listens to them anyway. Oracle at Delphi? Delphi? I think Delphi is fine. Fine. Well, um, like, why would you send people out there to get words from the Oracle and her, like, gas that she's mm-hmm. standing and huffing all the time <laughs> if you weren't going to listen? If you weren't going to listen to That's a great it. question, Andrew. I will. Mm-hmm. It, I, the answer to that is plot relevant, but uh, just preview. Uh, Leontes just calls it fake news, basically, when they show up and he did ask them to go get what he thought was going to be a confirmation of his suspicions. And instead, the Oracle exonerated everyone that he had accused and he he decries it as fake news. I guess that lots of governments and organizations sort of employ experts to tell them smart stuff that they then go on to ignore. So, yeah, I shouldn't be so... 
Yep. Surprise. Yep. <laughs> that this happens in this play. <laughs> um, there's a lady in waiting named Amelia. There's a shepherd and uh, the shepherd's son. In some versions of the play, the shepherd's son is called a clown. <laughs> uh, not in this edition. Uh, he's the shepherd's Clowns. son. Um, there is Aut- Autolycus, who is formerly a servant to Florizel. He shows up in Act Four as like the. He is the clown character. He's kind of this roguish guy who sings I, songs. I am Pogliani. <laughs> and he is like pretending to be different people. He gets his name from Bruce Campbell's character on Hercules and Xena, um, who was a character from Greek myth named Autolycus. Um, okay. Played, you know. It's, so they, they both get both those characters get their name from the same. I think it's not, Bruce- it's not Shakespeare. It was. <laughs> like oh, Zena, this is a, the name of a character I really like from Xena Warrior Princess. We, we don't know a lot about Shakespeare, but, he yeah, and we, and we don't. Fan. And listen, everybody likes Lucy Lawless. Maybe, like maybe he was just he just likes Xena. I'm fairly certain that Campbell's character is the one supposed to be from myth, and Shakespeare's character is supposed to have gotten his name from that guy. He okay, claims sure. anyway. anyway. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another Bohemian courtier named Archidamus. Whatever. Um, in Act Four. Time shows up. The concept of time. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah. Um, like the like the time the like the, with hours and minutes and yeah. not time like the the spice. Yeah, okay. No, great. Yeah, yes. Um, and then we have two ladies, lords, servants, and gentlemen, an officer of the court, a mariner, a jailer, Mopsa and Dorcas, the shepherdesses of Bohemia. No, that's not their names. <laughs> that's their names <laughs> that can't be their names. Mopsa and Dorcas. Dor- <laughs> Tag yourself. I'm Dorcas. I'm Mopsa. Uh, welcome to our podcast. Mopsa and Dorcas present. That's um, the eels from the Little Mermaid, too, right? Yeah. There's a Mopsa servant and Dorcas. <laughs> Uh, there's shepherds and shepherdesses, and then there's twelve countrymen disguised as satyrs. That's mm-hmm. in. That's the at, end of the cast list. Any questions? <laughs> Just feel like Shakespeare's running a job, like an employment program for all his friends with yeah. all with all this big old list of people. He's got a. He's got a lot of those. Um, okay, so you kind of helped us set up what this story is by telling us about Pandosto. So Leontes. King of, King of Cecilia, um, he and his buddy Polixenes are best buds. They went to King's school together. I don't know. They're good friends. Later on, I think Polixenes says something to the effect of like, they could have been best bros forever if they hadn't like discovered women, essentially. And I, I, it's an interest. It's like a they got the knowledge that Adam got in the garden kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. they it changed their worldview such that they couldn't be, their friendship could never be as pure as it was. Well, and this, and this predates of course the invention of bros before host by <laughs> several hundred years. Yeah, that's true. If only, if only bros before host, this play would have gone very differently. Um, so Hermione is pregnant. Um, she also thinks Polixenes is cool. Um, he's a cool guy. He's not, this is not, uh, like a Yumi and Dupree situation. He's been around for like nine months. Um, hmm. uh, and interesting, interesting, an interesting amount of time. And Leontes doesn't want Polixenes to go home. Polixenes is like, Hey, I would really like to go home to my kingdom that I'm in charge of. It'd be kind of cool. I've been here for a long time. Um, I'm think I'm going to go home. And he's like, nah, dude, stay. And Polixenes is like, no, really, I would like to go home. And Hermione's like, well, I'll go. I'll ask him and she talks to him for a little bit and he says yes I'll stay that's fine she kind of huh. guilts him into it mm-hmm. um, and she doesn't say anything untoward she just kind of like you know nudges him a lot and then he finally agrees and when that happens Leontes is like what did you do <laughs> how did you convince him I don't and then like they're kind of just chit chatting and he is saying, like, but to be paddling palms and pinching fingers as now they are and making practice smiled, smiles as in a looking glass and then to sigh as twere the more to the deer. Oh, that is an entertainment my bosom likes not nor my brows. And he's like, well, I guess they're boning and so that's been, not okay. my kid. So apparently the, it's, <laughs> the thinking back then was neither bros nor hoes. Yes, only me, Leontes. <laughs> um 
<laughs> and so he has jumped to the worst co- the worst conclusion on the map based on like zero data zero data based on a situation that he created that then went off the way that he hoped it would <laughs> correct correct yeah it's so that's like my immediate reaction having never read this play before it's one of the few that i that i had never like had occasion to encounter aside from a bunch of the histories that i'm sure i'll never read but uh <laughs> we might be doing this podcast for a bit yet that's <laughs> true um that like i was just thinking to othello where like the bulk of the play is like organizing it such that one guy thinks his wife cheated on him mm-hmm. and th- man if iago showed up in the winner's tale he wouldn't have to do nearly as much work yeah it sounds like the they've kind of been primed to think the worst of each other yeah yep um and he goes to his you know servant camillo and he's like hey you have you you've seen my wife is she slippery he says he says has has thou not see has not you seen camillo and then he says a bunch he interrupts himself a bunch and he says my wife is slippery and Camilla's like, are you what? Are you serious? Are you for <laughs> about real? This? Are you what? And and Camilla's argument is like, listen, man, you're talking bad about my queen. So I don't really want to agree with you, but you're the king, so I can't disagree with you either. Yeah, this is really a sort of look at your watch and say that you're late for something uh-huh. sort of question. I don't there's no answer to this that doesn't end with you. In the stocks, uh-huh. in the public square, I don't think. Leonti says, Camillo, you got to poison him, my bro. Um, you're going to go do that for me, right? And Camillo's like, totally cool. I will do that. And instead, he tells Polixenes what's going on and helps him flee to Bohemia, which Leontes takes as proof that the man is guilty <laughs> mm-hmm. because he ran away because <laughs> Leontes sucks. Uh, act two is all the accusations against Hermione. She's chilling out with her son, Mamilius, for a little while. But then, of course, Leontes is like, you were sleeping around. He throws her in jail where she gives birth to Perdita. And Polina yells at Leontes a bunch, shows him his newborn daughter. And he's like, that's not my daughter. Uh, and he instructs Paulina's husband, Antigonus, to take Perdita away and leave her out in nature mm-hmm. like not kill her but like you know just like leave her for a witch to find in the <laughs> yes. woods yeah you know Le- leave her out in the woods so that something with you know some so somebody with a good sense of dramatic irony can find and raise this child for me please um yeah that's exactly what's gonna happen i was gonna mm-hmm. ask if what you thought was gonna happen or and you nailed it in one um mm-hmm. act three you remember, you know what happens in the act in Act Three in Shakespeare, Andrew? Usually, uh, that's when the gun goes off, right? Usually, yeah. <laughs> ironically, in Chekhov and Shakespeare. Um, so yeah, there's a big trial, which is not really a trial because there's no evidence. It's just the king being mad. Oh, it's like Chrono Trigger. It is. She has to prove how much soup that she ate <laughs> at the fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's some really good language from Hermione in that in that act about like how all of these accusations are meaningless and like, what is the law if it's not even being actually applied, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when his, his servants who were sent to go talk to the Oracle show up and he's like, nah, fake news. I don't believe it. She's guilty. This sucks. And then someone runs in and is like, Hey, uh, your son died because he's so sad about what you're doing to his mom. People had delicate constitutions back then, I guess. Yeah. Um, Mamilius dies for real at this point in the play. And it does make Leontes sad. He does say, oh, Apollo is getting back at me for saying that he was fake news. And he does like, quote unquote, change i guess Mm -hmm. but we still have two more acts of the play left to do and it's not a tragedy where he's gonna like hear this news and then take his own life or something right Mm -hmm. so mamilius dies off stage and then like people never really wrestle with that again in a way that's kind of frustrating 
Um, but then Hermione, <laughs> what's to wrestle with? I mean, he got got sad. He died. It's the yeah, it's, the, seven, it's the seventeenth century. That that stuff happened all the time. <laughs> it's it's more that like the play has a as you alluded to earlier, not a a purely happy ending, but things mostly work out for people. It ends better than the original Pandora story, and there is not even a moment at least in the text of the last scene where someone's like, ah, yes, Mamilius. <laughs> like, no one no one is thinking about him as things are getting better in that last scene. It's like, if the... And I'm sorry. Okay, I got to cut myself off for references after this. Okay, please. But no, it's fine. It is like if the movie Up happened. Yeah. And you had that whole sad thing. With oh, man. him and his wife at the beginning, and then they never talked about his wife for the whole rest of the movie. <laughs> uh oh, because it's a thing that serves a dramatic yeah purpose right one time, and then it doesn't inform anything else about the whole rest of that person's life. Huh? What is up but the Winter's Tale of the Pixar catalog? Mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. It's gonna be thinking about that one. Yeah. Maybe th- are there I'm dogs just, named Mopsa and Dorcas in a, in a modern yeah uh, storytelling context to do something like that where a major character's son dies yes. and then it's just kind of brushed off after that. That's not very economical storytelling. Yes, it, it it's a it's a minor plot factor at the beginning of Act Five, but I would argue it it is kind of shuffled away. Um, Hermione dies. Hermione collapses to the ground. Mm-hmm. Leontes is sad and grief-stricken about it and feels guilty. Paulina helps her off stage. Can't imagine why. <laughs> and then Paulina comes back on stage and says, Yo, King, she's dead. And the king says, I would like to see my wife and son's dead bodies. They will share a grave. Okay. That's just, that's just sound financial planning. Yeah, he, no one is saying he's a bad king from a finance perspective. No, I mean, if they, like if they die at the same time, I want to throw them in the same hole. I'm not paying for two holes. He's he's going to build a school with the savings. He's he's a jealous monster, but he's not like you know just yeah. He's gonna he's gonna like hire some street sweepers or yeah, something. Yeah, um, and he's investing in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we don't see her die but she's proclaimed dead and the implication is that leontes sees her dead body okay okay but we don't actually see her dead on screen we do not okay um good to know cut to antigonus who has taken perdita to the the non-existent seashore of bohemia where he leaves her there with a little box of stuff that is supposed to prove that she's a princess um, it's, there's no note that says she's the princess of Sicilia. It's not, I don't it's think. not her like long form birth certificate. No, but it is a bunch of like trinkets and baubles and things that are supposed to prove that she is a woman of upper class royal standing. Sure, um, and just and just not incidentally something that he could see and recognize. Yeah, not at all. Later, yeah. Okay. Um. And then Antigonus gets eaten by a bear. He is... (laughs) Chomp, chomp, chomp. This is the most famous stage direction at all of Shakespeare. Uh, He has landed on this shore, and then he gets chased by a bear, and the stage direction says, Andrew... Exit pursued by a bear. Yes. Um, We don't know if Shakespeare used a real bear or a man in a bear costume. A real bear would have been quite a get, I think. Well, they they were still doing bear baiting back then. Is the thing. Mm-hmm. So that people are like, why is there a bear in this play? What does the play, what does the bear mean? And then some people are like, yo, people like to just poke bears with people sticks. People are just and- like mean to big, beautiful, yeah. strong, scary bears. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's why. Um, um, do you have I, a thought about this? To, I just wanted to ask about, so I, I, I don't know, I read a couple, a couple of interpretations of the bear scene where like one guy was just like laying under a bearskin rug and then he stands up and he chases him off the stage and like that was one but one of the things about these romances like these the the problem plays the late plays of shakespeare is that they that we didn't talk about is that they often also have pretty elaborate uh Mm. sets or effects 
And like you, and you know, you can put on Shakespeare however you want. Like you can just ask everybody to pretend that it's raining in yeah. the tempest and I'm sure they can figure it out. But yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask if there was anything that got your mind going, uh, set piece wise, aside from the bear thing. Sure. That we could talk about, or is it mostly just this, you know, this play revolves around this bear. Um, yeah, the whole play is about this bear. You're totally the whole set and the whole production is about this bear. No, the biggest question for me, if you were designing or directing this play would be so the the bear and the beach on which the bear dines on Antigonus. Uh, one of the beach bears. Yes. <laughs> um, he is making some pet sounds because um, he's an animal. Uh, <laughs> but how do you communicate the difference? And this happens in a number of Shakespeare plays where they like hop on a boat and go somewhere else. Um, how do you communicate the difference between the two places, between the court of Sicilia and the uh, like landscape of Bohemia, um, where we never go to the king's court? We are instead like hanging out at this rich shepherd's house, uh, and he has a big kind of almost like a Fozzywig style party. Fezziwig. Oops. <laughs> so we're at, we're at Fozzywig's <laughs> rubber chicken factory. Why and is he's there having not a, party. a Muppet Winter's Tale where Fozzie eats a guy? <laughs> um, yeah, they could. I mean, yeah, I think Muppet premises have been constructed on shakier ground Correct. than exit pursued by a bear and yes. fozzy oh yeah. it'd be so funny um but i think what what you decide to do to make bohemia different um because it is this like kind of inversion of the class structure of the other parts of the play where like the most important person is supposed to be this kind of lowly shepherd even though he has a bunch of money that he took from paradita's box and invested i think um or like used it to buy a bunch of cool stuff. But the, and so there's that element. How do you make that change? That's interesting. And the, and, and this Antigonus scene is your entry into that. And then we'll talk about the act five coup de théâtre, as it is sometimes referred with the statue of Hermione that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you convene a team to do the winter's tale, you have to figure out how you're doing the statue scene first or at least very early in your process because it's going to inform how you do anything else interesting uh, in the play from a a visual perspective um, or design perspective. I don't want to... I want to encounter that moment in context, but like... I don't know. What do you want to do with the bear? Do you want to see that it's a man in a bear costume? Do you want to have... How silly do you want it to be? That's a question I have. I just... Like, if you can't get the real thing, if you can't get Get a a real bear, yeah, then you got to lean into making it a little silly. I think there might be a way to do it, right? Where you, you have it be silly, and then what happens is the guy gets chased off by a bear, and then two characters who you haven't really met before come on stage and go, I just saw a bear eat a guy. And so, like that, can be played with a mixture of of humor and horror. I think, or if you're if you're doing it, like say you're doing it, like set against the backdrop of World War II for some sure, reason. Sure, yes, it can be. Like, the bear could just be a to, to to Winston Churchill giving an address, and then Winston Churchill can be like, "And I saw a guy get eat by a bear." Yeah, the World War the World. <laughs> World War's tale. <laughs> anyway, we're in Bohemia now. Oh, this. Oh, the shepherds find the baby on the beach, mm-hmm. um, and they're like, "Cool, this baby has this sick box with a, bun- with a bunch of money in it. Great." Um, and then Act Four, time comes out. Let me right. see if I have the. And there's like a jump of like thirteen years or something between the third act and the last one. I that please some try all both joy and terror of good and bad that makes and unfolds error now take upon me in the name of time to use my wings impute it 
Not a crime to me or my swift passage that I slide o'er sixteen years and leave the growth untried of that wide gap since it is in my power to o'erthrow law and in one self-born hour to plant and overwhelm custom. So time's here. Time is here. He speaks in rhyming couplets, which, which no one else really does in the play. Uh, and he is just a guy who's here to tell you that 16 years has passed. Um, and meanwhile, the king of Sicilia is at home sad. Uh, he's a, he's just a king who hangs out in his house sad now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the king of Bohemia, uh, Polixenes, now just kind of living back in his hometown, um, his son Florizel has been spending a lot of time at a shepherd's house hmm. hanging out with a young woman who we will learn is named Perdita. Who has a cool box. Yes. For some reason. <laughs> I think if you're if you're on the on the topic of staging this, yeah. I think if you're doing that, I think time is your stunt cast. Time would be a I think, great I stunt think time cast. is when you have Richard ha- Richard like, uh, uh I'm hi, I'm Time Hanks. Jesus. And I was gonna say Richard Kind should come out, but Tom Richard Hanks. Time, <laughs> yeah, Time Allen. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it's been sixteen years. Oh man, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that's I just did Job of the Hut. Excuse me. Um, yeah, that's what you could do. Stunt casting there. I mean, probably yeah. a lot of people are gonna like double cast time with autolycus or something like that i guess but if, if you've you got the money, money but no if you yeah go for it um, if you're putting on like a film like a nbc yes. musical adaptation of <laughs> a winter's tale uh, that'd be fun yeah that that could be your casting where it's like it's a new person every night that would be fun too Ooh. Ooh. i like that um okay act four is kind of weird i'll go through it pretty quickly because i didn't really click with Autolycus, who's like a big focus of this act, he sings some songs, he does some jokes, people don't really know what his deal is. I bet that stuff works better on stage than on the page, and I'm just going to chalk yeah, it up to that. This is Tom Bombadil over here, it he's, sounds like. He's a big Tom Bombadil going on, yeah, uh-huh. Um, I said I said. I heard you. I said yes, Tom I'm Bombadil. Um, Polixenes and Camilla are hanging out. Polixenes is like, hey, can we dress up as uh, commoners and spy on my son? And Camilla's like, I guess I have to. You're the king. I'd like yes. to go home. It's getting farcical up in here. It is. Camilla would like really like to go home to Sicilia, but he can't because uh, the king's still mad. Um, anyway, it's been they, a long time. They go. Oh, wait, no, has it not been the 16 years yet? It has. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So um, he's still mad 16 years later. Well, Leontes is mad and sad, but the people in Bohemia don't know that he's sad. They just know that he's mad. Have they just been keeping this king? hostage for 16 years or am i misunderstanding no who's, excuse who's me who's mad at um, who and who's being leontes is back home in sicilia okay, sad right. about all the death okay yes. polixenes is living in bohemia uh where he is king and he has he now has camillo who used to work for leontes who has not gone home yet because of all the stuff that happened okay great yeah um and the whole thing with Florizel and Perdita boils down to at the big Fozzie wig party, Florizel wants to get married to Perdita and uh, they're going to like have a hand fast marriage right there uh, in at the shepherd's. Do you, that's like when you kind of marry yourself out of the church, like you shake hands in front of witnesses and you are like, it's a oh, thing. Okay, yeah. sure. Um, and Polixenes, who's been in disguise and is just kind of like, hanging out with the commoners goes up to his son and is like, well, are you going to tell your dad about this, about how you're marrying uh, a common girl. And he's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Cause my dad would be mad. And he's like, he rips off his beard and he's like, I am your dad. You're not allowed to get married. Oh, These man. people suck. I'm out of here. Never come around here again, son. I have, I have five, five dollars for every time my dad pulled the old, I'm just a guy with a beard who's not your dad. And then he rips off his beard and it was my dad. I have a, a lot of money. Yeah. You could you could use it to pay for stunt casting for yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Um, Camillo is like, hey, Prince Florzel, if you want to, you should run home with Perdita. You should run to Cecilia with her because you could be safe there. Um, maybe I'll follow you later. And then he tells 
Pulixen is like, hey, they're running away, Cecilia. We should go get them, which is Camillo's mm-hmm. way to get home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shepherds and Atalicus uh, talk about who Perdita really is, or at least that she is someone noble. Um, and that's going to be important in Act 5 when everyone's back in Sicily, Andrew. Oh, good. Leontes is in mourning. He doesn't have an heir. So the court... Yeah, because he, like, killed all of them with how stupid he was. Yes. It's Oops. a real problem. Maybe he shouldn't old. have heirs. Maybe this is natural selection working. Hmm. Yes. Uh, instead... Like, come on. Instead, the court wants him to marry again. And Paulina says... You shouldn't get married again until your daughter returns. And Paulina doesn't know that his daughter is alive. Mm -hmm. She's just really mad about what happened to Hermione, of course. Mm -hmm. And Leontes is like, yeah, you're right. I won't get, I won't marry anyone again unless my daughter ever returns. Mm -hmm. There's a nice, there's a fun, big Paulina scene where she tells him that he's basically worthless and he just takes it because he's worthless. Because he is. Yeah. The Bohemians are arriving. And instead of us, this was a weird thing that happened. Instead of Shakespeare showing us the scene where any of these characters meet each other and the whole thing comes out, who everybody is, right? Mm -hmm. Autolycus is just out in the street and three gentlemen walk up and are like, did you hear what happened? The king (laughs) met his long lost daughter and and he made up with his best friend from Bohemia. It's just some, it's easier to tell don't show and that's why that's why that's a that's why that's the saying so don't show by it i wonder it's really effective storytelling i I made a few notes like maybe we're supposed to be a bit alienated from it because it would otherwise like because there's still one more scene to happen that might bring us back with leontes emotionally so we don't want to watch this scene with Perdita. maybe Mm -hmm. maybe it's just more interesting for us to imagine this because it does feel very like you know kind of by the book comedy like shakespeare comedy kind of end of play stuff sure so maybe we want to create some distance from that because it is so predictable you know what what it's not called story showing is it no you're right actually it's called, called sh- storytelling yeah right. yep five so episodes. Shake, shaky's doing it right shaky is doing it right. when he's just telling us what happened oh man play shaky yeah I'm sorry i doubted you bud yeah um also these gentlemen tell Atoclus, hey it's kind of weird this lady paulina has been going to this small little house like two or three times a day for 15 years we heard that she has a cool statue of hermione in there mm-hmm. she's been going there two or three times a day for like over a decade we're just noting that moving yeah, on this seems worth mentioning all right bye and then the last scene of the play all the important characters are in this hut. Uh, Paulina's like, hey, Leontes, now that you are have met your daughter and you've made up with your best good friend, I'm going to show you this cool statue that I made, I that I paid this amazing Italian artist sculptor man to make of your <laughs> wife. Mm-hmm. And she pulls the curtain and Leontes is like, yo, that's an amazing statue. She even has wrinkles. That's interesting. It's she's wrinkled. And she's like, "Yeah, he really got the part about her age and everything." And they're like, "Wow, it's like it's like you could see the blood in her veins." Like, yeah. Yes, yeah, extremely huh. realistic. And, and how long did how long does this go on for? For like a few pages. And <laughs> really? and he's like, "Hey, I I want to I, I can just like, hear I can hear the live studio audience just like losing their but, mind but wait. at this because like it's this interesting thing because he's like i want to kiss her and she's like you can't kiss her sir like the the sculpture was only just recently finished you'll mess up her face uh and then she's like but listen if she moves you this much and she literally says like music please and music starts playing and then hermione steps down from the pedestal uh uh-huh. and she and Leontes has like a whole reaction and they like, embrace Whoa, this is a really lifelike statue uh-huh. that they made. and everyone's like oh wow she's embracing him she doesn't say a single freaking word to him mm-hmm. 
And then she looks at her daughter and is very excited to meet her daughter and talk to her daughter. They connect. And then Leontes looks at Paulina and is like, hey, sorry that your husband died 16 years ago taking my daughter out to Bohemia. Why don't you marry Camillo who just got back? Because he's probably a good guy. End of play. And so the son did die for real, right? And the only time that that's been brought up since it happened was in Act 5 whenever when he's like, I'm so sad that I killed my son by, by proxy and I don't have an heir. No one in this scene, as I recall, really talks about him that much. I might be mistaking, like, in that forgetting, like, one or two lines, but it's not really a sticking point. You could argue that maybe Statue Hermione is thinking about it a lot, which is why she does not say anything to him. Mm -hmm. Um, But she is, he is really excited to have a son in law. Um, to replace his dead son that he's responsible yes, for yeah killing. no he can he can neg- criminally criminally neglect his <laughs> son-in-law now which is now great. there's a lot of people and some of them might listen to this show there's a lot of people who have probably seen productions that operate this way um where this statue thing is magic like it is functionally magic that she comes to life so she was really dead, and then a statue was made, and then the statue was brought back to life. And that Paulina may have magical powers. At one point in the play, when Leontes is really mad at Paulina, he insults her and calls her a witch, um, which I don't, I, I don't know. At the time, I did not think that it was a real. It's like, meant to thing. be literal. <laughs> I thought it was meant to be more metaphorical. I mean, I think any time that you start wading out into those waters, right, you're like, well, okay, if we're in a world where magic exists and it demonstrably works, then how many of the other story and emotional beats make sense? Because yeah. it's like a lot fewer, I bet. I, th- I just think that, yeah, I well, and there is there is a thing. Any, and listen, I've watched a lot of Star Trek. Any, <laughs> any fiction where characters can just come back to life really cheapens it whenever they try to go for a death yeah and and i think that is an interesting part of the end of this play and the way that this play when it is performed well seems to really thrive on vibes in that like you are moved by their reunification you are potentially moved by hermione meeting her daughter and if the production says that it was magic you're like wow that was i didn't even know magic was going to be in this play and you're just pumped and that's why some people think that's how the play is meant to be i Mm -hmm. found all the parts where paulina was like hey don't touch the statue to be pretty much like hey that's not really a statue that's how i found it it's not like personally what material would that statue be made out of where you couldn't like touch it after it was fully uh-huh because it's not like the whole thing gets done all at the same time <laughs> like it's, yeah it's not like it's still wet clay or whatever well that's like, what she's she, exactly and so i i don't know i found and i didn't find the version of it where it's not magic to be less satisfying or interesting uh, dramatically yeah because i i think it's just it's you're just playing up the laughs part because you obviously the audience knows it's not just like a statue think of the implications she has kept hermione secluded and safe in a hut for 15 years i mean that's its own weird thing to think about because apparently he was moved by grief to be repentant Mm -hmm. and who knows what might have happened uh if she had been you know told that she was alive if he had been if he had learned that information sooner i don't know what would have happened so it it everything requires some belief suspension here whether it's the fact that it's magical or whether or not you're on board with paulina keeping hermione in a shed for 15 years like you gotta get on board with one of those for the end of the play to work I was on board with the shed, I guess. I'm not. <laughs> I, it's it's either way, Paulina functionally restores the order of the of the world of the play. It is notable that this is like a a play where the 
the royalty at the beginning of the play is restored as opposed to a tragic royal figure is supplanted with someone new. Like that is, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's sort of similar to what happens in Tempest too, where it's a play much more about forgiveness, even though I don't think that there's a lot of outright forgiveness in this play by anyone other than Leontes. I think, I think a lot of people begrudgingly re-accept him for what he's done rather than forgive him. Um, Yeah, it's a, it's a real play. Um, It's a real tale. It's a real tale. And it's the the other thing about these problem plays, and this is more broadly for things like Measure for Measure and Troilus and Cressida, and because they don't have the same dramatic arc and clarity of a lot of the tragedies, you get to the end and like some characters are happy and some characters are clearly confused about what's happened and some characters are kind of bummed about what's happened. And then and the some characters are dead. Yeah. And some characters are dead. And then the play just ends. Um, and the so Tempest kind of just end to yep. a little bit. It's like, hey, remember how I cast a bunch of spells on all of you to make you act all weird and made some of you fall in love against each against your will. And I forgive the people who made me mad and end of play. <laughs> like Tempest, I, there's something uh, there's like a meta thing that I've heard about the Tempest, too. I think it's the I think it's Markowitz. I don't remember the name of the director who wrote a whole book about it, about like at the end of Tempest, Prospero breaks his staff and like casts it into the ocean or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's like the that's supposed to be like Shakespeare. Shakespeare giving up like, the pen. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. That whole thing. And and I, you know, to what you said earlier, like this is if you chart it just along this guy's career and the career of the people he was working with. Yeah. These are plays about like old people who make mistakes and then are kind of forgiven for them. That was what was really moving about that Maggie O'Farrell book, Hamnet, was like it was really centered on the cost of his life to his family. Mm-hmm. And so you can, um, the the most it dares envision about him actually is just like what grief was he living with that went off and made these like, you know, immensely moving works of art mm-hmm. Um but what was the version of that grief at home? And so like, yeah, there's something to these late plays that wrestle with that. Like I have a lot, a character who has a lot of misgivings about how things can and should be done and, and the way that things do and don't get resolved in the real world. Um, And how, how do you dramatize that? Um, the answer is you have a guy in a bear suit and a lady who may or may not be the statue and uh, a guy who doesn't want to be a cuck who kills people be- inadvertently because he thinks he has been one. That's just plays, baby. That's just plays, baby. That's how it do. Um, I think this play, if, with the right production, this play could be incredibly moving and I think a lot of that probably owes to the performances and to the design of it. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, you know what'd be really moving is if the bear got off its tether and just charged into the audience. That's <laughs> what I would find moving about this play. Yeah, that's true. And I've completely shortchanged anything that people might find funny about Autolycus. It was just not funny to me while I was reading it on my own. So um that's probably a thing that people who've seen this play remember. Sorry, but- Autolycus. I, I should just have, not funny. I should have learned that Bruce Campbell fact before I started reading. I might have given him a better chance. I mean, at least in your head, he then would have been played by Bruce. That's Campbell, what I'm which saying. I think would have helped a lot. I, I think, think whoever whoever got the role in your head just was not up to the material. No, he was kind of a crotchety jerk in my head, and I think yeah. it would have been better if he was an impish, charming, hot man who's just a character actor. Um, <laughs> So that's the Winter's Tale, Andrew. Thanks for listening to my tale. You're welcome for telling me. <laughs> I'm so yeah. tired. <laughs> you're just you're just speaking in Shakespeare speech. You're inverting all the words. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Send, just send us an email. Uh, zunes at over overduepod at gmail dot com. It zounds. It's zunes. It's God's wounds, Andrew. God's wounds. I think we've had this conversation before. Ooh, overduepod at gmail dot com. Let us know how you pronounce. Zounds, uh, Twitter and Facebook at Overdue Pod. 
Thank you to Nick Lorandis who composed our theme music. Oh, thanks to the folks who've been reaching out on the social media, including Morgan, Chris, Christina, Evan, Sydney, Leanne, Jason, Zach, Tara, and more. And your folks that want to know more about the show, where do they go? They go over to podcast.com. That's our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can click those links. You can get the book. And we get a cut, and your local independent bookseller gets cut, and uh, you get a book, and everybody's good. Everybody's yep. good. Uh-huh. <laughs> what are you reading for next week, Andrew? I'm going to read Trust Exercise by Susan Choi. Okay. And then the week after that, as we've said, we're going to be reading The Girl Kicked the Hornet's Nest, the third in the Millennium Trilogy. Uh-huh. For Millennials. By Stig Larson for yes for millennials and it's just going to be a good time a good time will be had by all yeah I hear that one's the comedy of the three <laughs> surely there must be one of them that's a comedy oh boy I don't I hope so I oh, sure hope so God okay all right everybody thank you so much for listening to our podcast and until we hit you next time exit pursued by happiness. Try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.